James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of Israel, scattered, dispersed, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone lacks in wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. But let him ask in faith without any doubt. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. But let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he'll fade away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the one who perseveres. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life for those that love him. These are the words that, the, the, that James wrote in his book, five chapters. As he wrote these, these words have such an incredible impact on us. Now, I want us to think about James. We're starting a series called Faith Does. And we're going to be looking at what James tells us. And James is the half-brother of Jesus and he is starting to write to a people that have been persecuted. They've been dispersed abroad. They suffered under the persecution of, of Herod, the, Herod Agrippa I. You can read about it in Acts chapter 12. But he is writing to them because this is early on in the church. It's the new beginning. And you know, when the enemy knows something is starting to gain momentum, what does he want to do? He wants to stifle it. He wants to kill it. And so that's exactly what the enemy was doing. And he used persecution to try to stifle the church. And so as James is writing this, he's writing largely to a Jewish audience because the, the Gentile outreach has not come to the place where uh, he was writing about it yet. He, so he's addressing mostly the Jews that were persecuted at this time. Now, as we look at this book of James and we see what he is admonishing these Jewish believers, we'll notice that it is very Jewish in, in orientation. He refers to like 21 books in the Old Testament, gives allusion to them. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Rahab. He talks about uh, some of the prophets, the laws, the Ten Commandments. And so he does this in an emphatic way, and he does it in a practical way. See, what James is doing is he wants people to understand that their faith should be lived out. If you contrasted a lot of the writings of the Apostle Paul, you would see that Paul focused on an inner saving faith. But what James does in this short book is he talks about an outward serving faith, a faith that is supposed to be visible to those around no, it's not a secret faith. It's not a, hey, my religion is to myself. I should keep it to myself. No, no, you're not going to get that from the book of James. 
Interestingly, there's 108 verses, and out of 108 verses, there are 54 emphatic commands that James gives us. And so he is trying to come alongside the church. He's trying to mobilize them to stay the course in the midst of all the difficulties. You say, well, why is he so emphatic? Why is James intense? He's an intense guy. Well, kind of liken him to that football coach who grabs his player that's getting discouraged, and he grabs him by the face mask, he pulls him in close, he looks him in the eyes, and he says, you don't give up. You're going to persevere. You are going to continue to live this out. Don't fail. Don't give up. Don't surrender away from God. And so that's what James is doing for us as a church. Now, this little book was circulated amongst the believers that had been scattered. Can you imagine the encouragement they received as they got this letter and they read this letter from somebody that cared about them and he is encouraging them and motivating them? And so just as it was an encouragement to them, it's an encouragement to us so many thousands of years later. And so it's so practical for us. Like I said, the series is called Faith Does. You will see as you read through the book of James, and I would challenge you, read through the book of James one time every day for a month and see if God helps you understand what this book is all about. And you will see that it's filled with action and what he wants us to do. Now today, there's different aspects of what faith does. We're going to look at how faith perseveres. We're going to look at the journey of a persevering faith as we, look at, um, as we look at these first few verses in chapter 1. Now, for those of you that are newer to Mission View, I want you to know we've been on a journey. We started a journey last fall where we started in 1 Peter. Our journey has been a journey of faith. And so we looked at 1 Peter, all the chapters there on being an outsider and how persecution happened to the church then and difficulties happened to the church now. Then we went in the winter and we looked at unlikely heroes of the faith. And we wanted to learn from these heroes on how we should develop in our faith. And now we're looking at the practical aspect of how faith should interact in life. Now, here's going to be my challenge. I don't want us just to preach God's word. I don't want us just to hear it and not be a doer ourselves. So being the practical person I am, when you came in, you received this half sheet uh, flyer. Now, I want you to take a look at this half sheet flyer. Faith does. It says this, summertime is a great time to roll up our sleeves and put our faith in action. Please prayerfully consider one or more ways we can love our neighbors either personally or as a church. What we're doing is we're giving opportunities for us to show the love of God to your neighbor, to our neighbor, and for us to be the salt and light uh, to our community. Now there's two, two aspects to what we're trying to do. Number one is what you can do. We're encouraging you to host a three-day uh, backyard blast. Now, we will help. Last year, we said that we would uh, have you host, that you would do the, the Bible study, that you would do everything, and that didn't really work out too well. The feedback we got was, 
um, we'd like to be coached through this. So we've developed a team this year that's going to actually do the Bible club, that's going to teach the lessons, do the crafts. All you have to do is make yourself available. If there's children in your neighborhood and you have relationships, we're, we want to encourage you to host and we will provide all the support that you need to be successful in that. Also, you can sign out the ministry trailer this summer where we will deliver it to your house. You can host a backyard barbecue. Um, we do it in our neighborhood on July 4th. And so uh, you can do that as well. It'll be equipped with games and uh, an inflatable and all kinds of things like that. But on the back side, this is what we are going to do as a church. These are all the different functions that we need you to think about right now volunteering for. And so that you can be, have a presence in our community. You will see some things that we've never done before. For example, Saturday, May 1st, called Laundry Love. Laundry Love at the Bubbles and Suds in North Canton. We're going to do laundry for people. And as we do laundry for people, we're going to have an opportunity. They're going to have, Dave's going to be there to cook out hot, uh, cook hot dogs. We'll be able to share with people, talk with them as they wait on their laundry. And so this is just a, a presence that we can have in the community. We're doing all these other things that are happening. You can read over the list. I won't do it now. But this is practical ways in which we would like for you to get involved. You will see ways or how many volunteers we need. All those signups will be on the web this week. So we encourage you to go and let's make our faith practical. Let's pray that God would use our body in this practical way. Lord, I pray, Father, that as we talk about what faith does, that you would help us to be a people that put in practice the faith that we so hold dear. And Lord, I pray, Father, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel in any way, but that we would be willing to take risks, that we would step out, because, Lord, there is a lost world, many people that just do not have the hope of Christ, and many people that would never enter into the doors of a church even to hear about the good news of Christ. We first have to be the hands and feet of Christ. We know that you have given us the commission. You told us to go. You told us to, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach. And so, Lord, we want to be obedient in that. So I pray that you empower us, that you encourage us, and motivate us within our hearts. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. James starts this letter by showing the believers what the road of perseverance looks like. It's a little journey that we're going to take. And we're going to have different stops for us to reflect on what this road of perseverance looks like. The first stop that we come to is what I call the joy behind the ugly. Okay, all of us know that in this life, there's ugly stuff, right? We consider it ugly. They're the hard things of life. They're the things that we don't necessarily want to go through. And James, very practically, is going to help us understand how to handle the ugly in our life. He says, and I'm reading now out of the ESV. Earlier, I quoted out of the NASV. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, notice how James starts this. He says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Please understand that this just isn't a greeting. This is stated there for a purpose. Everything in the Word of God is there for us to understand. And I believe what James is doing is he's giving his credentials. Now notice it isn't his credentials or his accomplishments that he is proclaiming. He is saying, I come in the name of God. I come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses all three words, Lord meaning supreme, Jesus meaning savior, Christ meaning anointed one. I have come in the name of the supreme savior, anointed one. And so he is stating what the credentials are, which was an encouragement to the believer and an encouragement to us. Because my friends, this is our credentials as well. Can you imagine going into a doctor's office and you're there and just before the doctor enters, you find out somebody lets you in. They text you and they say, hey, they, uh, do you know the doctor you're at uh, got his education through a mail-in uh, certificate on the web? I mean, he didn't go to college anywhere. You would be crazy to allow that doctor to give any diagnosis to you. You'd be out of there. But if you just happen to see the credentials of a certified degree, doctor degree from Harvard, from Cambridge, from Oxford on the wall, you would say, I have confidence. I have confidence because of the backing of the credential. My friends, this is our backing. Our backing is much better than Oxford, Cambridge, or any prestigious college. Our backing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by that, his accomplishment, that we go forward. Now, James, having given that, he then goes right into the ugly stuff of life. He says, in, in, in the case of these believers, he says, I know that you've been dispersed. The word dispersed is indicating what kind of persecution they have gone through. Because of persecution, they have become refugees. It's not easy being a refugee. We've heard a lot about refugees in our world today. And this was a tough one for them. Losing their home, losing their possessions, losing their friends, losing their family members. It was a big pill to swallow. And yet, James seems to be the eternal optimist when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various kinds of trials. This is like saying, hey, be happy when you are mistreated, when you are overlooked, when someone really treats you bad. That is difficult to do. But this is exactly what James is saying. Now, notice the words that he used. They're very specific. He says, count it all joy. The word count means this. It means to evaluate with your mind. In other words, there are times that we have to intellectually make a decision that we are going to have a joyful attitude in the life that we have. The reality is there's tough times in our life. There are times that our spouse will overlook us, that we'll be overlooked at work. We'll feel the pressure of life coming down on us, being a mom 24-7, being in a workplace where you're giving and giving and they demand more and more and they take everything from you and yet they don't repay that. You don't really see it in your paycheck. There's times where unsuspected burdens come your way or unsuspected tragedies that just comes out of the blue and you didn't expect it. 
There's times that we're ministering to individuals and we want to pull our hair out like, why don't you get this? You want to be that coach that pulls them right close. Yes, then, then count it joy. Count it joy that you go through these things. Yes, we're to count it joy. Friends, we may not emotionally experience joy through all these. I believe at the end of the road we will. But leading up to it, sometimes we just have to make a decision. I will trust God and that God will give me joy through the process. The first faith principle we have that we gather here is this. A persevering faith finds joy in trials. That's a hard one. It's a difficult one, but we move on. James now gets very, very practical in the next stop, in the next journey about how our faith is to persevere. He basically says the work must, there's a work that must be done through this journey of perseverance. There's a work that God is actually orchestrating in your life, in my life, through the difficulties that we face. And this is what he says. He says in verse 3 and 4, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's our word, perseverance. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect. That you may be what? That you may be perfect and complete. Say that with me. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see what God wants to do? See, what James is doing is he's saying there's a program here of as God is helping you through these trials and having a joyful attitude, he's actually trying to accomplish something beautiful. God is orchestrating events and circumstances in your life as the divine conductor, and he is trying to orchestrate it so that there would be something beautiful in our life. James says, for you know. It literally means to know through experience. You know through your experience in life that there is absolutely no gain. There is no gain of endurance and perseverance without the investment into pain. Don't you hate that thought? I hate it. I hate the idea that there has to be pain in my life. But we grow through that pain. And he says in the passage, he says it's through, through the testing of your faith. Now, please understand, sometimes when we think about testing, we think God is like this God who's up there and he's watching us and, 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 and we have to just somehow meet the approval of the Father. God's our Father, right? And some people have had domineering fathers that whatever you did, you could just never please that Father. This isn't the case. No, it is a case where the child, the son, the daughter wants the approval of the father through that testing in the sense that they want to please him. That's the testing here. Now, this word testing is used also in one other place in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And it talks about that our testing of our faith will be refined through fire. And so the idea is that only through fire, through difficulties, will we be refined? Now, here's the important thing. Faith has to be there. My friends, if you do not know Christ, if you don't have faith, that please understand trials will still come. 
But when they come and the furnace is on, what will be left is ashes. You will be devastated. You won't know which way to turn. You won't have any hope. But when you have Christ, guess what? You have an anchor for your soul. The, the storm might be going back and forth. It might be furious. Life might be chaotic all around you. But yet you have an anchor secure in your life. And that is Jesus Christ. The object has to be our faith. And when we have that faith, we will be refined like gold. And it says that we'll become steadfast. You know what the word steadfast means? It means that we have staying power. Staying power. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give out. I'm not going to give in. That's the staying power that he's talking about. But notice beautifully in the past, that's just verse 3. Verse 4, he goes on and he says, When this steadfastness takes its work and has its work finished, when God is done with the project, here's what the end product is going to be. You will be perfect. You will be complete. You will be lacking in nothing. You say, Steve, man, that's, that's a pretty lofty thing. Well, let's understand the words that he's using. The word perfect means this. It means matured, polished. The word complete means well-rounded, whole. Lacking in nothing means that I know that I'm complete in Christ. It's my identity. I know that you don't give me my identity. God gives me my identity. And so he's saying, I'm going to refine you. I'm going to mature you. I'm going to complete you as an individual. This is what I want to do through all of this. I don't know if many of you enjoy Rocky. I'm a Rocky fan. Now, when I watch the Rocky episodes, and when you go from one to, uh, let's say, four, in Rocky number one, Sylvester Stallone, he looks a little flabby. Okay, he's not, he's not all cut or anything. But by the time he beats the Russian, man, he has muscle on muscle. He has cut. Now, how did he get from point A to point B? Well, this kind of thing had to happen. Now, I know, Kim, when you watch that, you think of Lance right away. <laughs> I know, I know. See, Rocky had to enter into the trial of the workout. And that's, that's not an easy thing. It was not an easy process. But think of it in a spiritual analogy. The point that James is making on a spiritual level is that, yes, there will be fiery trials. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, you will want to give up. But if you have the focal point on Christ and you are disciplined in leaning on him, you will come out a fighter. You will come out polished, well-rounded, Lacking in nothing. See, this is what God wants to do in each and every one of our lives. Church, are you hearing this? Are you hearing what God wants to do through your life? He wants to orchestrate the events so that you will come out with great joy and that God would mature you through the process. Here's our second faith principle. A persevering faith believes that God is orchestrating something beautiful in our lives. Now, we might think, well, the journey should be over about now. I've had enough of this perseverance, but James isn't done yet. James has a few more things because he knows that we might be that fighter. We might be ready. We might be polished, but we still lack something. There are times that a fighter needs to know 
when to change his job, when to discipline their kids, or how to deal with this child, or how to reach my neighbor, or how to love my spouse better. These are not black and white issues. They're, they're wisdom issues. And so James comes to the place of saying, okay, here's the resources that you're going to need to make it through the journey. Here's a vital resource that you're going to need. And the resource is wisdom. Take a look at what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubt, for the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now what James makes clear here, and this is good news, is that our God is a giving God and he will give us in abundance what we need. Now the Jewish person that was reading this they immediately attached to wisdom because they grew up on Proverbs. They grew up on wisdom. And so immediately they perk up and they, yeah, I need that wisdom. And so what the wisdom, though, that they knew that was being spoken of here was not like a deep theological wisdom that after you hear it, you're like scratching your head like, what did they say? No, no, no. This is a practical wisdom, a wisdom that lets us live out our faith before God every single day. Now, there's two key things that he says in order to get this wisdom. Number one, you got to ask. You got to ask for wisdom. Number two, you got to ask in faith. Let's understand that. Why ask God? Why ask him for wisdom? Because God knows our framework. He knows that we need to be dependent upon him. And so he waits for our volition to be able to come to him in our hearts and say, God, I need your help. He knows who we are. He knows that we get worn down in trials. He knows that we drip with exhaustion. And quite frankly, we want to give up when our backs are up against a wall, when circumstances seem perilous in our life. He knows this is what we are. This is why he is giving us help, but we have to ask him. Now, I got to tell you, this is, seems so, so very simple, and yet this is the very thing that we don't do sometimes, or it's the last thing we do. Sometimes we consult a friend. Sometimes we talk to our spouse, or sometimes we will even Google the answer, trying to find out what should I do? What are my options? And we ask Google before God. And what he is saying is, no, 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 come to me. I'm the source of all wisdom. Google wouldn't exist without me. There would be no wisdom to have that. And you need to kneel before me, call upon me, seek me in, your wor- in my word, and I will give to you generously. The word generous means abundantly, liberally, God will give to us. And he says, I'll do it without reproach. The word reproach simply means he isn't going to find fault in us asking. In other words, there's not a stupid request. We can't come to God with a stupid request and God say, oh man, that was ridiculous. What were you thinking? He doesn't do that to us. He loves us. The second, though, thing that we have to do, and this is kind of the caveat to us asking, is that we have to ask in faith. Doesn't that make sense that if we're going to ask God that we simply believe that God is capable of answering that prayer? 
that we have to believe that. But he uses the word doubt, which means to vacillate, that we would kind of be wishy-washy. And in the passage, it says, when we are doubting, we are susceptible to being blown here and there by our waves of circumstances and that we could be tossed up in the air. This is, how, this is what these difficult circumstances can do to us. And he says, when we doubt, we become double-minded. The word double-minded literally means to have a mind divided between God and this world. Here's the picture. The picture is the person that's, God is good, God is great. Oh, I love you, God. I love you, God. Difficulty comes. He starts fading away from God. He gets angry at God, stops going to church, does, stops reading their Bible, stops praying, and just kind of meanders away. This is what is double, considered double-minded. Now, don't confuse doubt with concern because there's so many concerns we have in our life. Concern can turn to worry, but concern puts a burden upon our heart that should compel us to pray. He says, that's what I want. I want you to depend on me but I don't want you to have doubt that moves you away from God. Here's the faith principle that we need to know. A persevering faith does not doubt God. It doesn't doubt God. And yet, if we're honest, we all doubt God at times. There's been times in our life where we said, I don't even know if I'm safe. I don't even know if I can believe this anymore. And we slowly move away. You know the answer to it? When, the, when we see that in our life, God's always there. And he says, come back to me. You might be a thousand steps away from me, but you're only one step back to me. Reach out to me. Come to me in humility. Now, God is honest in this passage, and he says, I won't bless those that are double-minded, those that are unstable, but I will bless humility when we come to him in dependency of him. Now we move on in the passage and we see one other weird transition because all of a sudden he's talking about a wealthy person and a poor person, but there's a point to it. I believe what he's trying to show is that in this journey, there has to be an absolute dependency upon God. There has to be an absolute dependency. By writing this, take a look at what he says, but let the brother... Uh, lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises, rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance uh, perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits now by writing this James is identifying a problem that they had in their day but a problem we have in our day and that is wealthy believers of that day and our day, came to trust their material things, their homes, their possessions, their bank accounts, their gold. And so they find themselves great or less in need of God, whereas the poor man has nothing. And so he is constantly crying out to God. He is absolutely dependent on God. And God says, the brother of humble circumstances will be exalted. But why is he exalted? Because he's dependent upon God. And whether we're rich or whether we're poor, God wants us to have a dependency upon him. And what it says here is the rich man will fade away like a flower. He gives an illustration of a wildflower. 
Now, the wildflower prospers out in the field when it has sun and when it has rain. But when all of a sudden the scorching wind comes, the heat, the drought, that's the trial, he fades away. He fades away. Church, individually and corporately, we need to trust God. Let me make an application as a church. Sometimes in the church, not just sometimes, often in the church, there is a tendency for us to gain our confidence through how many people do we have? How big are our numbers in church? How, uh, how successful are we as a church? Are we, are we the glowing church in the community that everybody is talking about? My friends, that's the wrong way by which we measure success. Our measure of success is our growth in intimacy with God for us to be dependent upon Him and for us to trust Him that He will do. I believe that healthy things grow and that's our goal as a ministry, that we would be a healthy ministry. And as we are healthy, God will grow in His time. That's His job. Our job is to water. Our job is to teach the Word. Our job is to nurture and to help rise, raise up disciples. That is not a quick process. It takes time. And so what God wants us to do is to depend on him. Maybe our prayer should be the prayer of a gur. You know what the prayer of a gur is in Proverbs 30? It says this, Lord, keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Here's the fourth faith principle. A persevering faith trusts God. Not money, not success, not anything else. Plain and simple, God. Well, we get to the final leg of our journey. And the final leg of our journey is the reward. The reward for perseverance. What God promises. This is awesome. Every one of us want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear from God. And this is what he says in verse 12. Blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word blessed means to be fulfilled. Fulfilled is the person that endures, that makes it through the fire. A couple years ago, several years ago, about a decade ago, I ran the CVS Marathon. And I trained for this marathon, and I was excited about doing it, and I went out really, really strong. But something happened around mile marker nine, or eight, 18. Around mile marker 18 of the 26 miles, it felt like someone took two knives and stabbed them in my knees. I made a mistake. I went out too fast, too strong, and I was paying for it. And I wanted to give up. I was hobbling along. At times, I felt like crawling along. And there was time that I would try to, try to run, and the, the elderly man who's about 95 years old would pass me as I was trying to make, make, make my way to the finish line. But there was something in me that said, I am not going to give up. I am not going to give out. I'm not going to give in. And when I crossed the finish line, yes, it's true that they were starting to tear down everything. There was one person that's like, hey, here's your medal, and uh, then you go on your way. But there was a fulfillment for me. Here's the spiritual analogy. 
We're not to give up. We're going to feel at times that there is piercing pain that's within us because this life is hard. This life is filled with unexpected tragedies. This life is filled with difficulties. God never said it wouldn't be. But he says, don't give up. For those that endure, for those that go across that spiritual finish line in heaven, guess what's awaiting for you? A crown, a crown of life. And we all have those that have gone on before us. And we knew that they were believers. And there was rejoicing in that. Though pain in our hearts, there was rejoicing because we knew they were with Christ. But here's what they are receiving right now. They receive a reward. That's what a crown is. But it is a crown of life. Think about that life. What is that life? It's life with God. It's life that has a different quality than down here. The, the book of Revelation says it is a time of no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more disease, no more death. It is a life with purpose. And don't think that we go to heaven to play a harp for eternity. Jesus said, with those that have, have finished the course, you're well done. You've been faithful with little. Now you're going to be given much responsibility. There's a whole new world that I don't understand on that side and another responsibility that we have. But what I know is right now helps determine what happens then. And so what we are to do is to persevere and there will be a reward. But guess what? It's for those that love them. Plain and simple, that love Jesus. Church, we are being instructed by James that we are to persevere in our faith and do it with a dependency on God. And for those of you that have come to that place of realizing that the death, burial, and resurrection is a fact of life, you've come to realize what that means for you personally, that you have to surrender your life, that you have to turn your life over to God. For those that have come, you have that crown awaiting you. It's a fact. But if you don't have that crown, if you don't have that certainty, then you are not going to persevere through the difficulties of this life. And the reality is you're going to go through this life and you're going to leave broken pieces of your life all behind you. Broken relationships, broken trust, broken this, broken that. And you have nothing to hold on to. And what God wants is he has his hand out to you. And he says, I'll be the anchor to your soul. You simply have to repent of your sin and believe in your heart. Right now, I'd like to lead us in prayer. And if that is your heart, if you feel like that's where you've been, I want you to pray with me. I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than tell somebody that you prayed that. And then I have one more application for the believer. Lord, I pray for the person right now that would say, I don't have that anchor in my soul. I don't have that anchor in my life. And so I need Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive me of the sins that I have committed. I do believe in you. I do believe in the fact that you came, that you lived a perfect life, that you died on the cross, you were buried, and that you rose again. And I realize I need to turn my life completely over to you. I give up. I surrender everything to you. I pray that in your name.